Welcome to the Viscast, everybody. I'm delighted to bring you this episode. We interviewed our friend Cassie for this episode, and they talk about their journey, both their faith journey and their journey with gender and sexuality. And I think this is such an important issue right now, um, one of the big civil rights issues of our time. And frankly, there's a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding, and, and just downright ignorance and cruelty around this issue. And so we were delighted that Cassie was willing to come on and share their story with us, both about their faith journey and about their journey on gender and sexuality. Cassie is extremely honest and courageous and articulate. And we learned a lot, and I think you will too. Start from whatever, what makes sense to you to start from okay. and end whatever makes sense. Because, I mean, faith journeys are strange things. And so yeah. we all have our own place that makes sense as a beginning, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, start with wherever makes sense to you. Yeah. When I was really young, I remember my parents taking us to church. I'm the middle of five kids. And I have vague memories of a church. Mostly, I just remember watching VeggieTales in Sunday school. Uh, but then at some point, my family stopped going to church over a disagreement. I don't know the details about that. But most of my childhood was unchurched. I don't remember many discussions about God or what we believed in. Both my parents had been raised in the church and had left as adults. So then when I was 14, that's when I really, that's when I say I became a Christian. That's when I found an evangelical church that met in my high school. And that was a couple blocks away. So I started walking to church on my own when I was 14. And that was heavily evangelical. So very, very big on having a personal relationship with Jesus, praying all the time, um, sort of the, the emotional response in worship rather than an intellectual response. So there was a heavy emphasis on music and um, relating to God through the experience of worship music. So that's where I um, sort of found my place within the church. And it was during uh, a pretty rough point in my childhood. That was my parents got divorced when I was 13 and my dad wasn't around anymore. And my mom wasn't super uh, present because she was raising five kids. So I found, I found community and what I thought was love in the church at that time. I have a lot of different reflections now as I'm older. Um, and that, and that love was more manipulative than pure, I think. But I found something. I found something that I was looking for at that age. And so I went to that church by myself until college. And then college, I went to a reformed college, a reformed church in America. And that was a difficult shift for me. I had never heard of the reformed faith before. All I knew was evangelicalism. Um, so, you know, literal translation of the Bible, biblical inerrancy. Um, and I then was introduced to this reformed faith, which was totally different. Um, and I sort of shifted within my time in college to identifying as reformed rather than evangelical, but I still had a lot of those evangelical tendencies. Um, I got married in college and that marriage was um, the foundation of that marriage was female submission to male headship, that sort of model, um, complementarianism. Yeah. And I, you know, at that time, didn't believe that women should hold any sort of leadership positions in the church or otherwise. I was very, very against um, homosexuality and abortion, all of the big sort of um, issues within evangelicalism. So then I, uh, yeah, I was married and my husband decided to go to seminary. So we moved to Michigan 
And I taught music for one year, which is what my bachelor's was in, and then decided that I wanted to go to seminary too. And as I was reflecting about it earlier, I realized I went from, I pretty much did a huge 180 in seminary. Mm -hmm. I went from being very, very, very conservative. Um, I, I started seminary not thinking that women should be pastors. Yeah. Um, I just sort of went like, oh, I was just going for the education. <laughs> I didn't think that I would become a pastor or have any sort of leadership capacity, hold any leadership role. Um, and I went, you know, graduating seminary to being a very staunch advocate for women's rights within the church and otherwise. Uh, I started seminary being very, very, very against any sort of queer identities to identifying as queer in my time in seminary. Um, my entire view of the Bible shifted during my time of seminary. Um, so I think that's, yeah, seminary was a very pivotal point. I think my faith journey led up to this sort of crux in seminary. And that's where I had my, um, my wrestling phase, I would say, with Christianity, with faith, with God, uh, to where I am now, which I would identify as an atheist. And I don't attend church anymore. I don't read the Bible anymore. Um, and I would say that's where I am now. I, I see my faith journey is starting at age 14 and going to, you know, whatever age I was, 28 then in seminary. So lasting roughly 14 years. Um, it was roughly half my life at this point. So that it's interesting to hear those shifts in seminary. It means that you found some influential voices in seminary, right? That mm -hmm. started you on a journey that in some ways can lead naturally to where you are now. But having known you then as well at that time, I know that there was also, you, you met resistance in seminary as well. So it's interesting to me hearing that the journey began there. I think I had thought it began before so that it both began there in, I think, healthy ways or helpful ways, but there was also, I know, resistance there. Can you describe some of each of those aspects, like some of the ways that people helped you and then some of the ways that there was resistance to the journey you were trying to take? Yeah, I think when I first started asking questions of my faith, I mean, I think I've, I've always been a questioning person. And so even as I started seminary, I started questioning. There was a degree to which those questions were safe and healthy or viewed as healthy. You know, I started questioning my belief in male headship, for example. Seminary was great about that. They loved it. They were, you know, all for empowering another woman at the time to pursue seminary education. Um, and so I had lots of professors to help me work through untangling some of my evangelicalism at the time, which was healthy and helpful. Um, even untangling some of the homophobia and transphobia that I had, I had professors who uh, were super helpful in that regard. It was as if I was allowed to question some things up to a certain point. So that was probably my first two years of seminary and then year and a half maybe. And then I hit a point where I started questioning too much or too far. I started questioning the quote unquote wrong things, the things I wasn't allowed to question. So I started questioning how God deals with evil in the world. And my professors were not as accommodating to those questions. I even had a couple of times professors pull me aside after class or ask me to come to their office and ask me to stop asking those questions during class or to stop discussing particular topics because I don't remember what their reasoning was. There's just topics that are taboo. <laughs> there are things you're not allowed to talk about in seminary. And those things would be described as heresy. And I was labeled that, you know, several times <laughs> in my time of seminary. But I think what was even harder was my relationship to my peers at the time. You know, my professors didn't handle it well, but it was even harder for my fellow seminarians. I remember hearing from a friend that 
another mutual friend who was probably one of my best friends at the time saying she had no idea how to relate to me anymore now that I was questioning my faith. When I started asking whether God existed, she felt like there was no foundation to our friendship anymore. And so it was really lonely um, to not have, I don't feel like I had a lot of support going through that. I will say uh, the places where I did feel supported were mostly outside seminary while I was going to school. I know a couple podcast episodes ago, Josh, you talked about atheism for Lent that we did. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge, huge, huge help to me in my time in seminary. And it felt like it was a part of seminary because Josh and Marlon, you both are connected to the seminary in ways. And the rest of the group was made up of, you know, seminarians and pastors. So it felt like, you know, just like this extra class (laughs) that we had together. And that was the only place I felt truly safe to, to mm. ask the questions that I had mm. and to wrestle with the things I needed to wrestle with. Yeah. It's always interesting to me because, well, it is and it isn't. When I was in seminary, if I had been where you were then, right, you came to a place I didn't come to that early in mm-hmm. my journey. You know, in some ways you were going through it and I was going through it and I'm 44 and you're how old? 29. 29, right? So you're like 15 years, roughly 10 to 15 years ahead of me. And I know there's no judgments in these things. It's just the way they go in that journey. So I understand why it didn't go well in seminary. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would have gone well for me either if I had been in that space. However, what's frustrating about it is that now that I know this structure that lots of people are talking about of faith journeys, that they have this structure that includes this place of Brian McLaren's word for it would be perplexity, right? I wonder why seminaries don't have a way of helping people in these seemingly natural phases. It's as if you get to that phase, the perplexity or the real questioning phase, they weren't experiencing that as growth in you, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Exactly. Is that what right. was happening? Yeah, I think to use an evangelical term, I think they thought of it as backsliding, as going backwards instead of forwards. Um, because I think as Christians, there's this theory that you're supposed to be confident in your faith and like a hundred percent in beliefs and especially as a seminarian honestly I think the professors were scared (laughs) because they're supposed to be training up these these people these young people who are going to be the next leaders of the church and they want to instill in them confidence in their beliefs and so to have someone questioning that I think was scary for them I think you're right. I just think it's such a shame that we don't have a better paradigm for what faith journeys look like so that we can, we, it's not me, so that professors and churches can think more complexly in a more complex way about Mm -hmm. how these things work. Because what you end up with, and that's what we've talked about, is that if people can't enter that phase, how do we reach anything that might look like maturity? Yeah. Yeah. After I sort of um, went through that, that process and came out the other side, I discovered this Facebook group that I'm a part of. It's called your favorite heretics. And it's so great. It's this community of people who are deconstructing their faith. Mm -hmm. And that's a word that I found to describe that is deconstruction. Yep. And I mean, ironically, maybe not ironically, but I think most people would assume that that deconstruction automatically leads to atheism, but it doesn't. Almost all of the people in this Facebook group are Christians still. They went through this period of deconstructing their faith, of picking apart you know, what, what do I actually believe about all of these various issues? Who do I know God to be to me? And they came out with a new faith. So they didn't end up, not all of them ended up as atheists. 
a couple of did, of course, but most of them had to go through this deconstructing phase of their faith to reconstruct that was theirs, a faith that is socially conscious and more in tune with who they are rather than this faith that was passed down to them by either family members or a church group or something like that. It feels like um, in these situations that um, so many folks who are in the institution are uncomfortable with allowing a person to find their own way. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's what I discovered back when I was in seminary, and that was in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s. We were a bunch of second career people coming to seminary, and the seminary professors didn't know what to do with us because we mm -hmm. were a whole different breed of cat. Now, I'm going to get to where I hope this connects with you. We were asking questions that they weren't used to having asked. We were challenging mm -hmm. things because... We'd been in a career before. We used to work in eight, 10 hours a day, every day. We'd get up, come to, come to seminary at seven in the morning, stay till five at night. We'd be challenging, asking. They didn't know what to do with us, actually. Mm -hmm. Even though we weren't necessarily where you were at. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening now in institutions is you're a, you're a new breed of cat. Yeah. And you're in a, in a phase even different than what I was. You're not just questioning things about how we interpret the Bible. You're questioning everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know? And I think that's is frightening to professors, but I do think they will learn, some of them will learn how to deal. And so what did they learn from you? I would, I wonder what you think they learned about you or how, how to deal with somebody like you now, what do you think? You think they learned anything at all? Oh. <laughs> it depends on the day, I think, how I would answer. On a bad day, I'd probably say, no, I don't think they learned anything. Speaking as um, someone who sees the direction the seminary is heading, it's right. getting increasingly conservative. Right. But I think there were a couple of professors in whom I confided that did learn how to, how to structure conversations differently. One thing I, I thought about in seminary was a lot of our classes and a lot of our practices were geared toward our emotions and our feelings, which I think is absolutely important and necessary. However, I do think there was this sort of like anti-intellectual thread in seminary where we were not encouraged to use our brains as much. So we we're sort of encouraged to rely on our like our experiences and our feelings more. And I think having me in class um, challenged some of that narrative, um, especially going through the Enneagram. I don't know if you know much, I know Josh does, but as an Enneagram five, I rely on my, my intellect and my brain a lot more than um, someone else who might rely on their gut instinct or their feelings. And I think having me in class helped professors engage students of all of all kinds in that way. They, they shifted their questions from only asking, you know, a lot of my professors would ask, how does this make you feel when they're asking about a particular topic or a subject? And I encouraged them to ask, what do you think about this? Or how does this make you feel? Or what is your reaction to this? So I think I helped them round out some of their, some of their teaching styles, I hope. <laughs> so the, the fear that you, saw in the professors, let's say, and probably some of the students is, is real. And I've faced it as I went through my faith journey. I don't feel it as much anymore, but I definitely did. I'm guessing you felt it too. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, like, can you reflect on what it was, what it was like, what the feelings were like? Yeah, I know we were just talking about, we're not yeah, crazy yeah. about the <laughs> It's but okay. <laughs> this is a good way. We'll push this. I'm a five as well. So yes. I've had to work on my feelings as well. You know, like what does it feel like to go through what you've gone through? Yeah, it's terrifying. Let me see if I can pull up this Instagram post real quick. Um, I remember being terrified all the time. But here, I pulled it up. So yeah. this is like this little meme and it says deconstruction of your beliefs. Are you sure you want to do this? You may feel numb, angry, depressed, 
You may lose friends and your family will think you've lost it. But in the long run, if you hang in there, you will find peace. And, you know, it's, it's a little cheesy, but I think that sums up my experience totally. I felt so uncertain of where I was going and disillusioned and depressed. But I also felt like there's this curtain lifting up and I was finally getting to see past it. Whereas my life in the church felt like there was curtain all around me and it was muffling what was outside of it. And it felt like I was finally getting to peer past it. And it was exciting and uh, thrilling in a way, almost. Yeah, I definitely uh, had the same experiences, no doubt. This was over, for, so for you, it was over the course of two years, roughly, you'd say, maybe? Yeah, a year and a half, probably, or so, because it started on the cultural immersion trip. Yeah. And yeah, by the time I was leaving seminary, I, I would say I was pretty set in where I am now. That's fast. Yeah. It feels fast anyways. It's faster than my journey has been, I would yeah. say. I can imagine some people listening and thinking, well, but the end was atheism. Isn't that bad? Yeah. What would you say to somebody who said that to you? I don't think atheism is bad. <laughs> Obviously, this is where I've landed. Um, and I actually think, I, I remember having this moment in which I let go of God and felt empowered to do good in the world. And that might seem so paradoxical to someone who's Christian because our society is taught to view Christians as the most morally good human beings out there. And I think a lot of Christians are very good people. However, for me, especially in my reformed beliefs, I thought God was in complete control. And so there was a limit to what I thought I could do in the world, because if God is in control, how, what could I do then? If I could, you know, if God is allowing evil to happen, then what could I do as a, a single human being to combat the evil? So when I finally let go of that belief that God is in control of everything, that there is a God in control of everything, I felt so much excitement and power to do good in the world, to, to work for justice and to speak out against injustice um, and to help people. So I think atheism can be, I think on most days, I think it's neutral. I don't think it's necessarily good or bad. But I think for me, the shift from Christianity to atheism was a good one for me morally. What are some of the things, I mean, we've gotten some taste of it, right? Like you feel a freedom to work towards justice and goodness and helping people. A lot of people worry like, well, if, if, you're, if you don't have a religious tradition or a belief in God, then what are the foundations for which you have any values at all i mean i hear that a lot about aimed at atheists and it sounds like that hasn't been a problem for you so i don't know have you thought around what you would say to somebody who said that like how do you have how do you have any morals at all what's the point of morals right you know have you heard these things yeah i mean sort of i haven't heard them directly to me but i've heard people talk about it you know about atheists I think if a person requires religion to have morals, then they're not a very moral, moralistic person to begin with. <laughs> because I think we're, we all have a sort of sense of right and wrong without necessarily needing someone to tell us that. But my, I think my values haven't shifted much. I've always valued human beings. And I think that's even, even more true now that I don't believe in anything spiritual. I have even more value placed on the human being. And so a lot of my morals come from that, you know, working to do good for people and provide people with their basic needs, um, educating people, things like that. How would you compare some of the groups you were a part of when you were within Christianity to this Facebook group? Like, mm -hmm. what do you see in that Facebook group that appeals to you that you didn't see or feel previously in the, in your Christian circles? Yeah. The biggest thing that's, that, uh, comes to my mind is 
these groups feel more honest. They, they feel authentic in a way that some of my Christian circles didn't feel. There was a lot of sort of over-spiritualizing things, I think, that can happen in Christianity, particularly around mental health issues, which I have depression and anxiety. And so that was always something that was really hard for me in church because, you know, there's Bible verses about this. Do not let your heart be worried. Mm. Let tomorrow worry about itself. There's all kinds of scriptures that people would throw at me about being depressed or about being Mm -hmm. anxious. And it felt inauthentic and it felt like they were minimalizing my experiences. And I think in these groups that I have now, particularly because there are people who have been hurt by the church, they're very raw and honest about their trauma. They're honest about their experiences and there's no need to give this sort of like toxic positivity in response. Uh, We sort of let people's experiences sit there and sit there with them. Yeah, we don't need to give any sort of like spiritual answer back, I guess, or, or reason why these things have happened to us. Whereas the church really likes to wonder why things are happening and give reasons for that. I wonder, Cassie, if there are ever any moments where you miss something about this whole faith business, Christianity, the Bible, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, all the stuff that you valued and held on to. We all did. We all do. I mean, to a certain extent, at least I do, you know, I'm holding on for dear life sometimes, you know what I mean? And I think you know what I mean. And I'm guessing you've been there where you're just holding on for dear life, hoping you can, right? So do you miss anything about it? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've seen people who are atheists or people who are deconstructing their faith miss is the community. And that's what I most. Um, yeah. And I mean, my experience is highly unique too, because I graduated from seminary, moved across the country, and then hit a global pandemic. So <laughs> it's really hard to make friends right now. But it's hard because with church, either you have your church community or even we had atheism for Lent, even a group um, centered around something. It's so hard to find groups like that. And a lot of my community now has become online community, which is great, but I do miss, I really miss meeting with people and um, sort of having a common ground. I think that's been really hard too. I feel almost like an outcast in a Christian society, you know? Mm-hmm. I know we're not a Christian country necessarily, but definitely heavily influenced by Christianity. Uh, we think we are. I yeah, mean, the, the community <laughs> that you're talking about, the evangelical community, and even the Reformed community, which has become more and more evangelical, part of what you, you struggle with is part of I, what I struggle with. Let me just put it that way, because, mm-hmm. you know, is um, how to be who I am in a uh, in a place where that's really not allowed mm-hmm. you know i mean the the questions that we're not allowed to ask are the questions that everybody's asking inside quietly or a lot of people are asking quietly inside yeah. so i really identified with you saying the curtain lifted when you were able to make the declaration about how you felt about the existence of a God. For me, just being able to to decide in my own heart and spirit that I'm going to ask these questions Mm -hmm. about the Bible and about God and about the theology that I was raised and trained with. I'm going to ask these questions. I found that liberating. So I I really thank you for that, for that insight because I identify with that. We were saying the other day, we mentioned a couple of the Atheism for Lent facilitator notes. And one of them mm-hmm. was like, do not encourage or presume that faith can overcome these challenges, yeah. which I think is just such a great, like those spaces, spaces where nobody, well, you're just not allowed to like force people to overcome their doubts mm-hmm. are so rare. 
And that's what we did in that atheism for Lent. And it did take some bravery amongst all of us, but it was very freeing. It was, and we had a lot of fun and a lot of really great conversations. Um, I remember it very fondly and some learned a lot of really cool stuff that I still think about now. I want to turn to a conversation on gender Mm -hmm. because you have personal experiences in this, I think, emerging conversation we're having. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. it's taken a long time, but still there's a lot of people resisting it and a lot of people who don't know a lot about it. So I wanted to take this opportunity to let you talk about your journey with gender and then, you know, tell us some things you think people are missing or misunderstanding, and we'll ask some questions. So I think this would be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when you sent me the questions, one of them was, you know, when did you figure out that, or when did you discover that gender was a complicated issue for you? Yeah. And there's like, you know, the long story, which is now looking back my whole life, it makes sense. <laughs> I look back and see myself as a little kid dressing up in my brother's clothing and dressing as a tomboy for most of my childhood. And then going through a phase where I dressed hyper feminine because I was trying to suppress that. (laughs) And I remember feeling really uncomfortable, but feeling like I'm supposed to wear makeup. Um, So as as I discovered my gender, it makes sense as I look back, but I didn't really um, have sort of a conscious understanding of it until my last year of seminary. So it was 2018, no, 20, yeah, fall of 2018. And I have a very specific memory associated with this breakdown. (laughs) I had had a conversation with the ethics professor at the time, um, Sarah Barton. And she and I were talking about putting our pronouns in at the bottom of our email signature. So first of all, transgender people typically have to identify their pronouns so that they're gendered correctly. But the cisgender community, so people whose gender matches the sex they were assigned with at birth, have been putting their pronouns in their bios or their email signatures, or even introducing themselves with their pronouns as a way to show solidarity with the transgender community. I've seen it. I first encountered it on Twitter, I think. People's Twitter bios will sometimes say, you know, he, her, no, he, he, him. (laughs) He, him. Yeah. So that's where I first encountered it. And I, I knew what it was when I saw it, but I know it's, I feel like it's relatively new five years. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's it's growing more and more. I mean, there's still tons of people who don't do it, um, but it's becoming more more of a thing. So Sarah and I were talking about this and she was like, you know, going back and forth because she was worried about even the backlash she was going to get from the seminary at the time. Which, which wasn't going to be because she was transgender. No. It was just by putting she, her, she was going to be associating with her support. Is that right? Exactly, yep. Okay. Just by putting her pronouns in her bio, which everyone has pronouns. So it's not like (laughs) she was saying anything big, but her putting her pronouns would have been a show of solidarity with the queer community, which the seminary was not uh, in favor of. And so I remember having that conversation and then going home and I was like all about it. I was like, I'm going to put my pronouns at the bottom of my email signature. And I was all excited. And I literally was typing pronouns, colon, and I was about to type she, her, because those are the pronouns I'd used my whole life and just had a complete breakdown. I was sobbing, like crying and super confused, but I realized she, her didn't describe me anymore or at all. And that was pretty wild to experience that. And so immediately I'm, you know, like Googling because <laughs> that's what I do. I'm a five. I research, you know, <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> and because at first I was like, well, if I'm not, if I don't identify as a woman, if I don't identify as female, then I must identify as a man. I must identify as male because I was thinking binarily, um, but I didn't identify as a man either. And so I felt stuck in this liminal space 
I, for a couple of weeks, I felt pretty confused because I knew a hundred percent I didn't identify as a woman, but I also knew a hundred percent I didn't want to be a man. And so I was sort of left with like, what else is there? Right. Um, and this is sort of this intersecting with my faith journey. I was taught that God created man and woman. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that there were two sexes, two genders. And then I started researching and found this whole community of folks who identify as non-binary gender. And I realized that that was the best sort of descriptor for how I felt. So rather than thinking of gender as a binary with man on one side and woman on the other side, it's more helpful to think of gender as a spectrum. If you have man on one side and female on the other or woman on the other, there's a whole spectrum of gender expression in between. And if I were to put myself on the spectrum, I'd be pretty close to the middle. I don't view myself as either one or the other, but I think I'm more neutral is a a word I like to describe my gender, but non-binary is the word that I've used most frequently. Um, But genderqueer is another descripting word that people use to describe their gender if they, you know, a lot of times people will use that if they're a man, but feel like they're, they're queering to use it as a verb. They're queering their gender a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're a man, but they're doing it in a way that's not typical or not common. Yeah, I could go on and on about all the different identities <laughs> within the queer community. But I remember having that it's a very specific moment of, holy cow, I don't identify as cisgender anymore. <laughs> yeah. And from there, yeah, I mean, it's been a whole world of learning about myself and learning my identity, but it started, yeah, sitting down on my computer with my pronouns. And from that experience, you went forward from then into they, them, non-binary? Mm, yep. And it felt, I mean, obviously it was hard and at the beginning, I'm sure it felt new, but it's felt right. Oh my gosh, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, it was after like the couple weeks of confusion and just like chaos in my brain, when I discovered this, this label non-binary and I discovered I could use singular they, them pronouns for myself. I felt, I felt like myself for the first time ever. I remember, yeah, I remember thinking, holy cow, this is, this is me. I've never quite felt right using she, her, or, dressing very femininely. And I finally found labels that accurately describe my experience. So yeah, I felt freeing and um, scary too. I mean, it's very, it's very similar to my faith journey, I think, particularly because I was in a non-affirming space, like physical space. Um, It was hard to go through that journey um, there because I had to be pretty careful with who I came out to and who I talked to about it. But luckily I had a group of friends who were super supportive and affirming and they used my pronouns. They were the first ones who used my pronouns for me. Um, sort of got to test them out. That's a lot, a lot of trans people do when they're not sure. They have people test out their pronouns for them to see if they sort of fit. And I felt like they them fit me really well. Mostly because like I said earlier, it's a gender neutral term and I like that for myself. One of the things that uh, you could help me with, what I heard was something new for me. A lot of this is new for me, by the way, and I think probably some of our listeners, it'll be new for them as well, Mm -hmm. the terms you're using. But one of the things I heard, and I'd really like to tell me if I heard this right, is that you're describing your identity not in a way, not in a sexual way. Mm -hmm. You're, You're describing your identity in a gender and that feels different to me than describing it in as a sexual expression. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, gender identity and sexual identity or sexuality are two different things. Yeah, that's yeah. helpful. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because that's a new, that I think that's a distinction that would be helpful mm-hmm. for people to be able to make. Because I think because we're so such a sexualized culture and the church is yeah. about as bad as anybody, Whenever we think about gender, we think about sexual expression. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think you're totally right. Um, and I think people often conflate the two gender yes. and sexuality. Yes. And I, I mean, while I like the acronym, the LGBTQ plus acronym, I think that's also tricky because that's lumping them all together too. Right. Whereas, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual are sexualities. And then you have transgender, which has nothing to do with sexuality. <laughs> yeah, that's really helpful though. Go, go, keep going. This is helpful. Yeah. Everyone has their sex, which is their sex assigned at birth. And there are three major ones. You're either assigned, assigned male at birth, female at birth, or intersex at birth, which is something that people probably are not super familiar with. We're just mm. sort of shedding light on that identity as well. But that's when people are born with both male and female genitalia. That's right. So that's your sex. Then you have your gender identity or gender expression, which may or may not match what your sex assigned at birth was. So for a lot of people, if they're assigned male and they identify as a man, they're, they're what would be called cisgender. But like you said, Marlon, that has nothing to do with who they're having sex with or not having sex with. That's all that we're talking about is that person is a cisgender man. They identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. And then you have transgender, which has become sort of an umbrella term to refer to anybody who does not identify with the sex they were assigned with at birth. So that's for people who maybe were assigned male at birth and then transitioned and now identify as a woman. But my identity also falls under the trans umbrella, at least for me it does because I don't identify with female, which is what I was assigned with at birth. I identify as non-binary. But yeah, again, those are all gender and sex identities, and that has nothing to do with sexuality at that right. point. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's new information for me, by the way. Oh, I, yeah. think I, I think I knew it, but you really, you really helped um, sharpen that for me. Thank you. Yeah, and, you're welcome. And queer, can you say something about that term? Because that feels like a bigger umbrella to me yep it does yep yeah and then i mean language is always shifting so we're still i mean th these terms are going to change as as we go on but the term queer is yeah you know, so it's a it used to be a slur right i mean mm -hmm. back when i was a kid but even farther back it was a negative term used to describe someone who's gay probably um and it's a slur that's been reclaimed by the community um Sort of, yeah, that happens all the time. Um, but now queer is sort of this umbrella term to describe anybody who, who isn't cisgender heterosexual. Yeah, I think that's Basically, right. Basically, yeah, right. There's, there's nuances and people might have different definitions, but I identify as queer both in my gender and sexuality. So two different ways, three kind of, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways I feel like I'm queer. <laughs> But me being non-binary, I, I would call that being queer. Yeah. But I would also say my sexuality is queer. I don't know if we, we didn't talk about this very much, but not yet. Um, no. I identify, sure. Yeah, I identify as on the asexual spectrum as well. So that's, that's fairly new. I read a book on it. The Invisible Orientation is really, really good in talking about asexual identities. So... What that means is I don't, I personally, because I'm demisexual is the term, don't experience sexual attraction unless I have a strong emotional bond with somebody. Now that's true for some asexual people, but then there are some people who have repulsion to sex, who don't want to ever have sex. And so they're what we call asexual. And then, then there's you know the whole part of sexuality with who you are attracted to that's sexuality rather than gender identity as well. And I, I say that I'm pansexual. Sorry, there's lots of terms and I'm trying to <laughs> define them all. <laughs> but pansexual meaning I'm attracted to a person without their gender being like a sort of important thing. So a shorter, faster way of putting it is I'm attracted to men, women, and non-binary people. Got so it. people who identify as any sort of gender. Yeah. Demisexual was something I r ran across like last week for the first okay. time ever. So 
this is only the second time I had heard it, but I don't know where I might saw it on Huffington Post or something. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. No, that's really helpful um, for me, for lots of people. Well, I'll ask you something oh, that we might not even uh, add it out, but you said your partner just came home. Yeah. Did you, you want to say something about your partner? Or are we going to edit? We can edit it out if <laughs> Josh doesn't like it. Yeah. Um, I've been dating Tommy for a year, almost a year and a half. And he identifies as genderqueer. So that's what I was talking about earlier. He he still uses he, him pronouns. He was okay. assigned male at birth, still uses he, him pronouns, but views his gender as queer, as okay. outside the norm for folks who are assigned male at birth. I was going to ask uh, about misperceptions. Mm -hmm. What are some of the common misperceptions you run across that people have about transgender or queer yeah, I think, I'm not sure this is a misconception as much as just a, a thing I think people assume about queer folks. But I, I often hear that, you know, why are queer people so obsessed with labels? Why are they obsessed with making up new words? And that's hurtful as a queer person, as a person who's found identity within language. Mm -hmm. um, because I think what that question is doing or what that assumption is doing is trying to contain our gender, contain our sexuality in a box and say like, well, the words that we already have that exist should be enough for you. But queer folks and other folks, lots of different communities are redefining words and coming up with new words and specifying words to get them even more specific. And I think that's really important. Um, I was just trying to think of an analogy for it. And I think the best one is if you had this really particular special color that you liked. Um, I know I have a particular shade of teal. That's my favorite. And if someone just came up to it and said, that's just blue. And you're like, well, no, it's this, this particular shade is, you know, teal or cyan. And if someone just said, no, that's blue. We already have the word blue, just call it blue. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but that doesn't work because I'm trying to refer to this specific color. This shade isn't blue. It's this word, it's cyan, it's teal, it's whatever. And I think that's what's happening with this acronym, the LGBTQIA+, however many letters you want to identify. Um, people are finally finding that word to describe their gender or that word to describe their sexuality that describes it as perfectly as language can. Mm -hmm. And people are finding freedom in that and they're finding, they're finding their identity. And I think that's really important. Yeah. I heard somebody the other day on a podcast talk about, this is, this is related, not closely, closely, but it's, <laughs> it's decent. Um, I'm curious what you think about it. They, they were talking about how um, we talk about day and night. And he was saying, but what about dawn and dusk? What are those? Right? And somewhat interestingly, we know those to be the most interesting and beautiful, creative, you know, parts of the day, like complex parts of the day, right? I mean, mm -hmm. If you think of Monet doing paintings over and over and over again, because the light's changing every second. I don't know. I just thought that was a helpful way because it's both um, clarifying, but it's also like really positive mm -hmm. about your community that you identify with. And so, I don't know. I liked it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that would be my argument for Christians who try to say that, you know, God didn't create non-binary people. God created male and female. Well, if you're using the Genesis creation story as an example, there are so many different things that, that exist that are not in that narrative. <laughs> and right. I think talking about night and day is a good example. There isn't just night and day. There's a whole 24 hours of in-between sort of lights. And I think the same thing is true for, for gender and sexuality. There isn't just one or the other. You know, there's a whole spectrum. Yeah, that's well, I have a neighbor 
Cassie, who has mm -hmm. a still flying his Trump flag, and he has a sign out front that says, um, I believe God made male and female, end of story. Yeah. Which... <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he's probably, and I'm guessing, he's not an elder in his church. He's, he's highly thought of, and I know this to be true. So this is the kind of thing that um, I want to apologize to you for. I, I just think as a Christian, and I still identify as a Christian, mm -hmm. um, I'm embarrassed by what we've done to people who are searching, simply searching to try and discover who they are. And again, I'm going to use Christian language in, in God's beautiful, vast, unique kind of world with all kinds of different people in it. And it saddens me the way we've treated folks like you in the seminary and other places. So, you know, I would offer a sincere apology as one Christian leader anyway for that. And, and my desire, and I think this is a desire of a lot of people, is to come alongside you and understand better. Mm -hmm. I really do. I think I find this fascinating, and I think a lot of our listeners will too. Now, some will be like, why does she have to do that? Why does she have to make everything so damn complicated? Right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what to say to them. What, what do we say to people like that? Yeah, I don't know, because I would, <laughs> I don't have much of a filter these days, so I probably wouldn't be the best person to ask. You don't need a filter on this podcast. <laughs> That's right. Because, because those people aren't seeking to understand, and so there's nothing I could say that's going to change their mind at that point. Thanks so much for listening, and a big thank you to Cassie for being on the show. We really enjoyed learning from them. I don't know if we'll have a new episode next week or not. We're heading down to Florida at the end of this week, and we'll be there all of uh, next week. going to bring the equipment with me, just in case. So it's possible. But it may not be until the second week in April that you hear back from us. But we still got lots more we want to do and say. And we're so grateful for anybody who listens. All right, be well.